want to take a few minutes to tell you about our latest sponsor, Benevity. Benevity is a company I know really well. Not only are they led by wonderful people who are driven by purpose and a desire to make a positive difference to the world, they're also global leaders in their field. So Benevity's technology facilitates workplace giving, volunteering, as well as grants management. It helps employees to deliver positive and meaningful impact through the support of different causes and different charities. And I know from personal experience, having used it only last week, that it really works and it's effective and efficient. So I wanted to give to a cause. I wanted my employee to match it. It all happened through through clicks online. Check them out. Go to the website, benevity.com. Highly recommend checking them out as a potential for your corporate, your business. Let's get back to the show. We all feel sometimes overwhelmed by the challenges in the world. Let's take climate change, for example. You know, what can you do as one person? But actually, do something local, plant a tree, get involved in a local campaign, or in my case, work in the charity sector. Purpose Tea Podcast. Speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purposely with Crispin Truman, OBE. Crispin heads up the Rain Foundation. It is a private foundation supporting a wide range of causes, mainly in the UK, but also in Israel. Set up 50 years ago by Lord Rain, the foundation has an endowment of approximately 100 million. Crispin has had a fascinating career focused on purpose, from social work to leadership roles across mental health, heritage, housing, and school governance. He has a vast amount of experience of the civil society and the charity sector. He's also a keen cyclist, and you'll hear about that. He rides to work. Excited to be in his new role, you will hear his vision for the future and what he hopes to do with the foundation. Really good listen. Before we jump into the show, can I just ask you to... If you're on Apple Podcasts, you're on Spotify, whatever platform you're on, if you could hit follow, it makes a massive difference to me getting the message out there. Enjoy the episode. Crispin Truman, a really warm welcome to Purpose Day Podcast. Good morning, Mark. Great to be here. Good morning. You're in London. I'm in Auckland. You've cycled to work. It's um, unfortunately raining this morning. Is that right? That's right. You're very clued in. Yes, drizzly and grey today. So I think the spring is still a way off, but... um, we can cycle in all weathers, just put the rain gear on and off we go. And so, uh, got here fine. Wonderful. Real pleasure to have you on Purposely. You're the director of the Rain Foundation. Mm-hmm. What's its mission and vision? I thought that'd be a really good place to start. Yeah, I've been uh, director of the Rain Foundation for four months now. So, I'm a new boy and really, really enjoying it. Uh, it's a grant making foundation. So, uh, in the UK, we have a large range and number of foundations that give grants to support the charity sector. And we work mostly with health, social care and the arts sector in Britain across the UK, uh, supporting a wide range of causes and campaigns and needs. The organisation has been going for about 50 years, uh, set up by Lord Max Rain, who was a property developer after the war. So the Rain family were Jewish refugees to this country in the early 20th century. And uh, after the Second World War, property in London was obviously in a bad way. And apparently there were very few property developers rebuilding London, and, and he was one of them. And obviously it was a good time to be buying derelict sites and buildings, doing them up. And that continued right through the 60s, 70s and 80s. Um, and uh, he set up the foundation with some of the profits of that work. He wants to uh, give back. He was a classic philanthropist doing good in many, many ways. He was chair of the National Theatre, for example, for many years as a uh, 
uh, part of the National Theatre has his name on it, in fact. And money was put into a separate foundation, and uh, is where I am today. And it's a great pleasure. I've been working in the charity sector for 30 odd years, running uh, charities for 25 of those. And most of that, all of that work involves having to raise funds and find ways of keeping the organisation going financially. So it is, I've said, huge pleasure and privilege to now be uh, on the ground making side and a revelation in a way, and an opportunity, I hope, for me to use what I learned uh, in service delivery uh, on the other side to support charities on, on, on a widespread basis. Absolutely. I want to dive into that. So an endowment or endowed foundation, just over £100 million in, a, in an endowment, and then it gives away the interest on an annual basis? That's right. Uh, it's slightly less at the moment because the markets, uh, these things fluctuate. I'm learning a lot about investment management, I can tell you that. Um, and you have to hold your nerve because, of course, markets aren't great at the moment, so it's not up there at the moment. But we're in this, in this for the very long term, which is key. So part of my job is uh, making sure that we look after that money. We have an army of, of expertise and volunteers and advisors to help us do that. And the other part is, yes, to disperse um, is the interest plus some of the growth in the capital, which is the general approach for foundations. So we're not going to sit on more and more money. We are dispersing it. Um, and uh, that goes into a grants program, which is managed by the wonderful team here. It's a small team of five uh, based in our lovely central London office. And uh, we manage a process where people apply and uh, we assess their applications according to our criteria. And hopefully we can help them. Of course, there's never enough money to go around. So one of my challenges is to help the foundation become a bit more strategic about how we use our money. Because it's always a drop in the ocean compared to need and uh, have a greater impact. Yeah. And sort of looking back a bit at the history of the, of the foundation and, and the research I did, so things that stood out to me were, you know, building a bridge between medical research and hospitals, which I, I picked up on. There's sort of some statements in there around looking at sort of a nod to the future. So new needs builds bridges to better communities. There was, although Lord Rain was a traditional philanthropist in many ways, there was some sort of future looking built into, you know, the way it was put together and the, the way it's been operating yeah absolutely right and um we're looking at the moment one of my jobs this year is to help the organization refresh its vision and mission for the future but i think the absolute founding principles were as you say about building bridges between communities between different disciplines so working across sectors busting silos uh, and supporting the most disadvantaged in society so in that way lord rainier was very forward-looking and progressive and those are principles we very much want to hold on to throughout its history rainer's used those principles in different contexts. So yes, we used to do a lot of work in the medical sector, which we do less of now, and uh, the arts. Um, and we're currently focusing on older people's care, which is a big area of need, as, as many will know, uh, and particularly supporting carers for older people uh, as a profession. Uh, secondly, we're focusing on younger people's mental health, a big issue, um, and with a focus on those who have had experience of the care system. And thirdly, we focus on social change through the arts. So some amazing projects are uh, doing wonderful things with people all sorts of challenges uh, using the arts to help them for example older people with dementia uh, choirs and uh, orchestras some wonderful stuff there so yeah in, in a way it was a very forward-looking organization and that multidisciplinary cross-cutting approach is something that very much appealed to me and uh, i think it was probably helped me getting the job because my career has been in a number of different sectors of run charities in uh, first of all, mental health, criminal justice, secondly, in heritage, and thirdly, in the natural environment, so very broad. And I've also been 
chair and trustee of a number of organisations in education and health and community backgrounds. So I very much love making connections and working across sectors because I think people who need help, the most disadvantaged in society, they don't organise their lives according to silos that we use to organise our businesses. They need us to work across those and connect services together. And that's, that's my interest. Yeah. And so, you know, approaching the trustees and, and putting yourself, your best foot forward, did you have an understanding that they were looking for a sort of some strategic guidance? And is there a sense that almost anything could be on the table? And I'm thinking there around potential for using the capital in, in different ways. Was there, was there any, you know, was, is there any hint that you got before you ended up in an interview situation that you could be a bit bold? Yeah, I think being bold is, uh, I think running a charity like this with a long history and with a strong family interest, uh, one is, has been nuanced, but there's definitely an appetite for change in uh, one key area, particularly, and the trustee has said this to me, which is they want to become more proactive, and this is something a number of funders are doing now. So rather than just sit waiting for applications according to some broad criteria, we want to, uh, in those three areas I've just mentioned, work with services and commissioners and indeed beneficiaries and practitioners to help tackle particular issues. So with the Older People's Programme, for example, we are going to be working with a number of areas in the country on uh, career structures for carers in the older people's care system, something that is lacking at the moment. That will be much more developmental um, and we'll then use our money to support that work. So they want us to become more collaborative to help convene organisations and practitioners and beneficiaries in in these areas and really try and make our money go further through partnerships with others so that's the direction of travel that's the new stuff and as always with charities trustees have a really strong sense of the, the principles and the vision and indeed some strategic direction well my job is to translate into that into something that works on the ground so to operationalize it as they say so that's what i'm beginning to do with the teams to work out what that means in practice and when you went for the role, is it a role you really wanted? Like, do you remember going into the interview and thinking, don't screw this up, I really want this role? Or did you get excited as the process went on and it only sort of mm. dawned on you later that actually it's something you'd really like to do? Uh, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, when applying for jobs, certainly in my experience, um, and I've been lucky enough in most of my jobs to be looking while I've been quite happy at my current organisation, so I've had the luxury of being able to choose but yes, on this occasion, I was applying for a few things. I was in the natural environment sector and thinking I might want to progress that and stay in that sector. I also looked, of course, uh, the heritage sector, which I'd worked in before. But I had always had an interest in the grant making side. And after 25 years running charities, there was a bit of me that wanted something very fresh and different. And grant making certainly gives me that. It's a very different set of principles and uh, it, ethos and uh, way of working it's a very you know i'm very privileged to have this role and uh, i feel a real sense of responsibility that i have to make something obvious i need to add value one of my main tasks is to work out where i add value to what the rain foundation does in the future and it will be something around that strategic direction but yeah so i went for a few jobs across a range of areas and you know sometimes sometimes something clicks particularly when you're interviewed by trustees and chairs this has happened to me previously you just you know, you'd go for a few things and uh, you get through a few stages and it, it feels good and learning, but there's nothing that clicks emotionally. So, as I said, it is almost a gut thing. You just know that something's coming right um, after one or two interviews. And of course, you're always nervous and uh, not sure about how it's going to turn out. 
But yeah, it, it really felt right when I came here. Conversations were, we were having um, really took off. And that's a real sign, isn't it? That we, I was getting animated by the, the cause and, and the challenge. And uh, I got on very well with the board. And that, of course, is critical when you're going for a chief executive job in a charity. And thankfully, here I am. It's a joy. Wonderful. Changing tack for a bit and, and sort of going, casting the net right back. You've ended up carving out an, a, a really phenomenal career in sort of civil society, charity sector, education. But looking back to your early years, is there any hint that you would end up sort of focused on purpose? Is there, is there experiences that you gleaned as a, as a young person that you look back on and think, actually, that was formative? I think, yes, um, in broad terms. But I'm, I must say, and I say this, to my, I've got kids of early in their early 20s now who are wondering what on earth to do with their careers. And it is still the case that the charity sector and social purpose-driven work is much less apparent in, to people in their early 20s. It's not a clear career structure. And I guess because of the nature of the resourcing, we don't make the case for working in charities and purpose-driven organisations to young people in the way we need to do. And that's very difficult. I mean, I've done some um, stuff at my local school on uh, work careers advice. You know, they invite in people from different sectors. And I'm sitting there at my table saying work in a charity. And next to me, I've got, you know, work in the music sector, work in data and IT and uh, exciting, buzzy stuff like that. There's a very small queue at my table. And so I, I think we need to work out how to sell purpose-driven work. But for me, it was something about feeling a sense of injustice in the world, which I, I take no credit for this, but I remember watching the nine o'clock news that it was in those days in the 70s when I was a kid and just seeing terrible things going on in the world and feeling that sense of uh, yeah, injustice. You know, what can we do about this? And of course, you don't think it through rationally in those days. I just felt that gut reason, gut, gut feeling. So when it came to uh, university, I ended up doing a socially uh, informed course, political philosophy and economics. And um then when I came to leave and all my uh, peers were going into the financial sector, I just knew it wasn't for me. I couldn't have done it. You know, I didn't have it in me. But there was no clear path. So I ended up volunteering. Volunteering, of course, is a brilliant way into the social sector in Britain uh, and just discovered I was able to do initially with social work and then went back and retrained. So, yeah, there was a, there was something deep down. And I think, I mean, my, one of my favourite adages is uh, think global, act local. It's an old green phrase, which I'm sure you know. Uh, and I, I often feel that and I often use it in my work. We all feel sometimes overwhelmed by the challenges in the world. Let's take climate change, for example. Uh, you know, what can you do as one person? Might as well just go down the pub. But actually, you know, that, do something local, plant a tree, get involved in a local campaign, or in my case, work in the charity sector. It's, it's a sense that I can actually make a small difference uh, gives me a sense of control over those wider challenges and threats which which are out there and which feel so overwhelming. And the narrative at home, like what what did your parents do and what was the conversation? Was there was there sort of a was a political family where there you know dis- discussions around sort of you know civil society or or volunteering? What what was the sort of vibe at home? Yeah, and I'd, I'd like to imagine that we'd had lots of erudite, informed intellectual conversations over the dinner table. But I think. I had three younger sisters, and we probably spent most of our time fighting over uh, the pudding. My dad died when I was very young, so he he was a paper scientist, interesting, in a very different world. So I don't know what he would have thought about my career. But he and my mother were very definitely socially and politically aware, and actually they were very involved in the early days of the CND movement in this country. I remember 
my earliest memories is finding a great big plastic bag of CMD badges in the attic. Um, and so there was an awareness there, but it was no more than many, many middle-class families in this country who care about things and social issues and try and do something in their own way. I guess at school I became quite interested in politics and would have political conversations, but you know, it was just your typical kid really with a bit of anxiety about this stuff, and it just slowly shaped up for me. I, early, early days I thought I would like to get involved in politics, but I found the uh, door-to-door door knocking and uh, all the work behind that rather too much. I did have a, a small attempt at getting political office in the early 2000s when I was particularly exercised about what was going on in my local community. I did actually stand for office, uh, which is very exciting and very, very hard work. Unfortunately, I didn't get elected, but uh, that was always in me. just ended up taking those energies in a different direction. Yeah. And losing your dad early, did that have a, a big effect on you, do you think? Or, or did it... Um... And, and did you think about it much through your childhood? Yeah, I'm sure it does. I mean, it's very personal. I'm not quite sure I can put my finger on it, but I'm, I think I'm probably a very different person as a result. I grew up in a very female-dominated household for a start, three sisters and a mother. So ho- hopefully that's given me some of the benefits of a, a maybe more sensitive, understanding uh, approach. I don't know. But we, we moved house as a result. We moved to Bristol, which is a, a great city as a result because my mum knew people there and and wanted to start a new life and that was probably a good thing for me because we ended up living in a very exciting city and I uh, had lots of friends and uh, a really good teenage time there and I uh, went to an ordinary comprehensive school which was uh, not particularly high achieving but you know, actually I made really good friends and uh, got a real experience of life there and, and got the qualifications I needed so uh, I think it was it, I was lucky things worked out for me but yeah I'm sure I'm a different person as a result of that yeah and so you ended up at Oxford University, is that right? I did, yes. And that was that was luck, I have to say. Um, I know people say, well, you would say that. But um, I was at this comprehensive in Bristol and never sent anyone to Oxbridge before. And we got a new head of sixth form who was very ambitious. And she uh, pulled a few of us out and said, we're going to get you in. <laughs> so uh, I hadn't really thought about it until that point. Um, and it was uh, the course Philosophy, Politics and Economics actually gave me that cross-sector, cross-disciplinary opportunity which in those days late 70s early 80s i chose my a levels history maths and physics which was unheard of to mix the arts and the sciences and caused all sorts of timetable problems and schools tried to stop me doing it a couple of us did that um but that was just how i thought at the time i just thought i want to do these things i'm, I'm interested in science and and the arts and not a specialist in either and that, that continued into my university career and uh and then into my career afterwards so i've always been that sort of not a specialist, but seeing the connections and trying to make it work together, that's always been my interest. Mm. And, and arriving at Oxford and being amongst a lot of public school contemporaries, I'm, I'm guessing, or certainly people who had had a, an easier ride maybe, <laughs> did you feel like a shadow of water initially? Was that challenging? Did you feel overwhelmed or actually it, it always felt like it fitted? Well, it's funny you should say that. Uh, no, I, I didn't fit in at all to start with the first couple of terms. I felt very overwhelmed and out of water, and I really missed my very good friends back in my hometown. And uh, it was for the very reasons you give. The, the dominant people were very confident and from the public school sector. I'm not making a political point there. Uh, uh, but the good thing about Oxford is it's a very big place, big university, and there's always people like you if you if you hang around long enough. And I found uh, people I did get on with and really liked and ended up uh, actually moving out of college was the best thing for me into a shared house in the community with some good friends and never looked back really had a lot of parties I have to admit yeah I mean 
one of the wonderful things about the UK is a lot of people, if they do go to university, they they leave their city or they, they certainly leave their town. Did you did you really feel like you uh, could have grew up during that period? Did you feel like you sort of found yourself? Yeah, I think it was, it was a wrench to start with because you're very. I was very young. I didn't take a gap year. All my kids have taken gap years. And I think that's a good thing because you're just so young at 18. So it was a wrench. But I remember moving into my second year house when I was 19, 20 and suddenly thinking, yeah, this is great. I can do this uh, independent and looking after myself and never look back. So I think I think it is a good thing uh, that people tend to go away from their hometown for university. People are different, but I think it can really help you broaden your horizons and, and work out how to live as an adult. Yeah. Absolutely. And so you talked earlier about um, a lot of your colleagues were heading off to um, make their fortune in the city, but you took a different route. So out of, out of Oxford, graduated, what, what was the next move? I've, I, in my research, I, I saw social work, but there might have been something in between that. Yeah, I had to find my way to social work and, and the careers advisors at Oxford did not recommend social work. No. I can tell you, I actually did mention it to them and they said, no, no, accountants is much better. So it took me a while. I actually went home and worked in a pub for a bit, uh, as many do, but did this brilliant thing called community service volunteers, which sadly doesn't exist anymore in Britain, which was a volunteering program which gave you a place to live with other young people, pocket money, but that was enough to live on and the opportunity to work with for me, it was a disabled person, and it also allowed me to move back to London, move to London, into a shared house. So I had that for six months, working with somebody with a physical disability. There was a very um, exciting time in the early 80s in physical disability, a really strong ethos around giving people independence and control of their own lives. So volunteers were very much seen as the arms and legs of people with physical disabilities, and it was it was a really strong philosophy. Quite, quite political in a way. It was very interesting and really could see how I could help somebody live a, a full life given a very difficult uh, disadvantage being, in this case, with somebody with cerebral palsy. And uh, that just gave me the opportunity to get into this res- initially residential social work. And then once I've done that, I got a job in that, which allowed me to set up on my own in terms of you know, getting my own place and things. And then I thought I'd better go and train and become a professional social worker, which I then did. So I did a postgraduate which also included an MA, MSc in social science, applied social studies. And that gave me the qualification I needed to get a social work job. I then typically took a bit of a sideways move again and ended up working for a housing association because, again, studying social work, I thought, you know, there's a lot of talking about people's feelings and uh, sort of up-the-line stuff, the stuff at the top of the hierarchy of needs. But quite often, these people sitting there thinking about their benefits and their housing and the practical stuff gets in the way. You've got to tackle that first. So I was really interested in that and I was interested in the community side I was less interested in how you improve individuals mm. experience more and how you make stronger communities which is perhaps a bit more preventive as well so I worked for a housing association as a social worker which is a very unusual job for a couple of years uh, and that's when I discovered cycling in London actually because all my colleagues drove everywhere and wasted vast amounts of their working day dealing with parking and breakdown and congestion problems and I just cycled and used public transport. And I, initially, my boss said, you've got to get yourself a car. That's part of the job. And yeah. I sort of vaguely tried, but wasn't committed. <laughs> then I pointed out after about six months, I said, I'm doing twice as many case visits as my colleagues. So do you really want me to get a car? And uh, it was quite. And that, that's what made me aware of the benefits of cycling in London. I got more and more politicized about that. Cyclists in the early 80s were treated particularly badly on the streets. So I got involved in the London Cycling Campaign, which is a fantastic organization still campaigning for cyclist rights today. 
Wonderful. No, and um, no, it didn't take it further. Sort of, I'm thinking, you know, tours of France and and, uh, and and racing. You didn't get involved on a competitive level. No, I'm I'm not very good at that sort of stuff. I'm not very sporty. Um, I do a lot of exercise, and cycling is a good way for me to get exercise into my working day. Uh, and I actually, I've taken up running in the last three years, uh, which has surprised me as much as anybody else. But no, I never got into the competitive side, but. I've met people doing it, and I, I like cycle touring when I get the time. Uh, but I like to see the countryside. I like to stop and have a pint or a tea. Uh, I like to take it fairly gently, and I don't have a lot of time for it. So I'm really a cycle commuter, and I do you know, I do ten miles a day at the moment to and from work, and a lot more going to meetings and things. Um, I just love that freedom and the speed and ease of getting around, uh, and the sense that you're not polluting environments. And frankly, you know. A lot of cars in London aren't needed, and people are polluting and congesting the streets and causing a lot of problems. Really, they should be using other perfectly good modes of transport. So there is a political side to it for me, too, for the environment. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a good mentally, it can be really, really good in terms of um, because you ended up in heading towards becoming a leader and, and CEO roles. Was that always something that you thought you could do? Did you consider your, I mean, we said outside of this conversation that um, you didn't plan your career, but yeah, was leadership always on, on the sort of horizon for you, do you think? That's funny with hindsight. I can't really remember ever thinking that I was going to do that until I did. And I, I, after my social housing association job, I was very lucky to get a job in a new small charity called the Revolving Doors Agency, which was being set up in the early 90s to really tackle a challenge around people with mental health problems who'd fallen between the nets of services and ended up in the criminal justice system. And it was a new experimental project with not much money. And I got a job there with a team of four. And it was uh, I learned so much in a very short space of time. Uh, the guy who was hired to actually run it was really inspirational, charismatic leader type who taught me so much in a very short space of time. And after three years of working for him, we wanted to move on and the, the organization was moving into a new phase of becoming more established. And they were, so they looked for a new director and I applied for it. And, and uh, I guess up until that point, I never really thought that would happen. But I was the right person for the job at the time. Obviously, I knew the organization and I was more prepared to invest the time and effort in, into establishing it on a more formal basis. And it all came together. So it's funny how careers develop, isn't it? And again, I've got kids at the moment in their 20s. and they're struggling with this and part of me is really as a parent wanting them to find their way and uh, understand where they want to go uh, quickly and part of me keeps reminding myself that when you're in your early 20s you really didn't know and it, is, it is difficult and interesting how things work out there's a bit of luck and a bit of judgment of course some people have great vocations and, and that's great for them but I certainly didn't um, but once I was running things I just enjoyed it so much I enjoy as I say being generalist as a chief executive you tend to be working across disciplines and getting them to work together so i loved in my later jobs with bigger organizations i loved getting a fundraising team to work with the finance team very different disciplines uh, and to make sure that was then supporting the delivery teams i find that exhilarating really to make them make the machine work that's that's where i found my strength yeah and i think you know probably in the 90s 80s 90s i always thought there was a sense that you know you sort of learn to become a leader or, or a CEO or, you know, these there's something you can become if as long as you get, you know, but actually I think where we've landed on is all types of people, approaches, ways of being can be effective in their leadership. And, uh, you know, like it's also 
about being your authentic self, about bringing who you are to that. Uh, what what was the style that you sort of brought? What was then and and that endures? Uh, well, I, I have to rely on what people tell me. Really, I, th- I mean, I think I am quite reliable and committed. So, I think reliability is important in leadership. Too often, you get exciting, buzzy leaders who don't worry too much about being reliable, and I think that's not good. I think commitments, reliability, some fairly boring stuff actually is vital. So, a good leader does have to be a good manager as well. But you have to have a bit of the vision and the passion uh, and the energy. You have to have such energy for it. So it is harder to do when you're older. And you have to like people. You have to like people. You have to like bringing people together. I think you have to be a good chair. So you have to be able to listen to arguments from both sides and help people in a group find a way forward. And I think on the other side of it, what helps you become a good leader is uh, you're right, there's no formal training as such. There's lots of training courses, and obviously some people do MBAs. That's a big commitment. But for me, it was having really good mentors. I was just so lucky. I had other older colleagues, uh, the chairs of the boards I worked for, the director of the organization I joined, the Revolving, Revolving Doors Agency, were just great mentors who believed in me and showed me the way. And I think having people like that, uh, more experienced people to, to support you in mentoring and coaching you, is the key game changer and it's been becoming a, a good leader that's the way in so it's not signing up to a course to be a leader it is it is those other people that support you mentor you that makes a difference and uh, for me it's also joining uh in this country we have the association of chief executives voluntary organizations akivo it's a peer support trade body which uh, has been invaluable to me as well in my career just has that right level of training and support and advice to guide you through what is, you know, there's a lot of learning on the job in this sort of thing, and particularly in charities. A lot of charities can't afford to send you on an expensive training course. Yeah, so it's a funny mix, isn't it? And one of the key things is, I guess, is you said around um, energy, but but also, I guess, what experience would offer you is that ability that things might seem bad now, but actually apply ourselves, we'll get through this, that sort of positivity about the future and, and staying calm. Yeah, optimism. You're right. Sometimes I've been criticised for being optimistic, particularly by my finance people. But actually, without optimism, particularly in the charity sector, where you often don't have all the money in the bank to see you through the financial year at the start of the financial year, you've got to have that um, and that drive and that vision. And you've got to have a clear strategy. I mean, that I guess what's made my career work for me has always been to have a clear strategy to hang everything off. So to spend, when you join an organisation, to spend time listening to all the stakeholders, internal and external, getting a real picture of where they want to go, where the organisation needs to go, and then crafting with them an agreed three or four strategic aims that are focused and pithy and people can understand and digest that you all agree. And then you put those down on paper and you hang everything off them. And that just means that every step in a difficult journey when you're asked the question, do we do this or not? Is it in line with the strategy? Is it going to deliver the strategy? I think without without that, you are scuppered. Yeah, always going back to the mission. I think that's... Yeah, vision, mission, strategy, really clear. That stands really well, uh, test, test of time. And I think one of the other unique elements of, of, of running charities, you know, Revolving Doors Agency, then you went to the Church's Conservation, um, then, then the Countryside Charity. I imagine is that relationship you would have had with those boards so really crucial element is you know like working well yeah. uh, and complementing each other with your board of trustees yeah absolutely and particularly with the chair i mean all three of my chief executive jobs four four yeah it's because i got on with the chair i was hired for the chair that 
shared a vision with me and that relationship is absolutely critical and it's a, it's a partnership uh, and, and getting boards so a large part of the job of the chief executive of charities is managing upwards is supporting the board and making sure it's working properly and you do that with the chair and uh, if you don't have that relationship then it uh, that quickly goes awry it's an interesting thing the sort of the charity board in the sector because it is it's a group of volunteers who aren't involved in the day-to-day of the business and they have to find the right level of trust in the executive that they hire because we are immersed in the organization and the business know inside out and so getting a board and a chair that really understands that distinction between vision governance and strategy and operational delivery is absolutely critical and when again when that breaks down it, it doesn't work uh, but i've been very lucky i've had a lot of really great chairs for a very big variety i had a very well-known mp frank fields for my uh, chair at the church conservation trust who then handed over to lloyd grossman who's a celebrity and uh, a heritage and arts uh, expert uh, very very different people but we just bonded in different ways and both of them really understood the role that a chair has in adding value, uh, looking outwards, promoting the organisation, making connections, opening doors, facilitating the work of the staff team. And I've been lucky enough to have a number of chairs that do that, in, including where I am now. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Sometimes it doesn't work. And volunteers, when you hire, when you bring in trustees, it can be a risk. Getting that right is critical. But I think, that, you know, without it, I, I was also a school governor, chair of governors in my local school a while ago. And that was that was. That's an interesting area. States run schools in Britain have these uh, volunteer boards, um, and uh, many of them are parents. And in many ways, that's not easy, and sometimes it's a bit clumsy. And, but it, what it brings is that passion and that vision and that, and that ownership, uh, which matters so much, I think, to giving the organisation a drive and a sense of direction. And when you're in the detail as a director, as a member of staff, you do need somebody who can have that helicopter view and that vision sometimes to just make the right call on things. And when you're looking back, toughest day in the office as the chief executive? Like, do you remember, or, or certain types of challenges that regularly came up that you found really challenging? I think probably one of the toughest was was when totally unpredictable. And actually, it's, it's when you can't predict something. I like to be on top of things and have I mean, you know clear strategy and plan. You know, a lot of space for people to bring their own style and skills to the organisation. Uh, is when something hits you from sideways. So I'll never forget the day when the, the banking crisis happened and the, the Icelandic banks collapsed and the Church's Conservation Trust, we lost a quarter of a million pounds overnight. And uh, that was a very terrifying moment. We actually got it back, all back, interestingly. So that was a relief. So that sort of thing is, is very difficult. And I think the other thing I find difficult in my last job is internal politics when you've got people. In fact, my last two jobs, a lot of people with different views about how to do things and you do everything you can to take people with you and to get the right way forward but when you get the odd outlier who's very determined to just argue every step of the way you get that with some membership and volunteering organizations and that's just a bit soul destroying you think sometimes with friends like this who needs enemies you know you think you want people on the inside of the organization to be on side and when they're not that i find very hard i think the only other thing that i would say is is when people aren't pulling their weight I'm very, very keen to have, a, I think my leadership style is fairly open and I believe that you get the best out of staff by giving them the autonomy to be themselves and to work to their best. So I mean, giving them a framework and set objectives, I expect people to get on and do the job and occasionally you get somebody that doesn't and that 
I find very difficult and challenging to deal with because it's so depressing, really. But uh, the vast majority is not like that. Yeah. And as we look towards wrapping up and f- looking to the future and, and the Rain Foundation in a couple of years' time, what were the two or three things that you want to do in that period of time? I think we, we want to clarify our future direction for the next 10 years. And that's a process of getting people to articulate and agree what's already out there, I think. So clear vision and mission. And I think I want to get us communicating a bit more. Grant-making foundations are rightly very humble, and so don't promote themselves much. But I think it's important to communicate what you're about and what you're trying to achieve in a way that allows people then to engage with you, whether as applicants for grants or partners and collaborators. So I'd like to see us communicating more and better in a more modern way. So I think you'll probably see a new website in the next year. And I'd really like to increase impacts. You know, we when I look at all the grants making, all the organisations that we support, they're all wonderful charities doing great work. But we also turn down almost 90% of applications to the organisation. This is a problem for so many foundations and trusts, and the need out there is so great. You're often having to say no to organisations that are doing really vital work. So make sure that we don't waste people's time and get better at engaging the right people and giving them the support that they need to move on. There's a number of trends in the grant-making sector around supporting organisations for longer, having a more trusting and open relationship with charities, reducing the bureaucracy and all the effort that has to go in fundraising from so many different sources. And I'm very keen that we can help with that. I remember myself having to make all those applications and manage all those funding relationships. Anything we can do to ease that burden for charities in this country, particularly this time of need, I'm very keen to do. Wonderful. And like you say, you've been there, you've been on the other side and having that real relational type of philanthropy or, or giving, you know, trusting, working with people over a longer period of time, investing more, longer, and having those sort of very honest conversations and just be more open, I guess, be more accessible. All of those things, you know, should lead to, to greater impact. Yes. And I think that's hard to do when you've got a very broad and diverse, wide range of beneficiaries. So I think we do need to focus a bit more to get that so you've got fewer organizations you can then have a more in-depth relationship and more developmental relationship with them and that could then yeah as you say have much greater impact and there's a lot of a lot of good advice and experience out there with foundations already doing this so i want to make sure we learn from that and learn from the way others have done it really identify where we can make the greatest change i think the other thing that interests me is connecting the world of charities with the wider world of the public and state sector and you know we we push for change and innovation and good practice and we try and help as much as we can but once you know a solution uh, for a particular problem you really need government to help get it out there if we want to see things replicated and uh, delivered on a broad scale if we want universal access to a service for example we have to be working with government and i'm quite interested in how we can do more of that as a sector and influence influence governments and, and support them, but also get them to spend the money where it's needed in, in the way that's needed, because there's a lot of change needed in the state sector. And I think we can help with that as a charity sector. Crispin Truman, massive thank you for joining me on Purposely. Thanks very much. Lovely to talk to you, Mark. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do. 